I had my COVID booster this week, so that's why I'm wearing a mask. Because I actually had, I don't know if anyone else is like this, but I had a really brutal response to my COVID booster. So I decided to mask just to be extra sure. Okay, I'm going to pray for us because I need a moment of quiet. <laughs> I suspect most of you do too. Lord God, we long for you to give us joy. We long for joy to fill up every crack and nook in our soul. Fill us with your presence. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Expand us. Make us capable of so much more than we can ask or imagine. Amen. So if you've been with us over the past two weeks, then you know, as Amy said, that we're in the season of Advent. This is the third Sunday of Advent. Um, it's also known as Gaudete Sunday in Latin, and that just means rejoice. And so we mark this Sunday with a rose-colored candle, which I find really interesting. I mean, for the artists out there, I find it really interesting that the rose-colored candle is actually a tint, almost, of a purple color. So it's like if you're adding light, you get to the rose-colored candle. And so I think that's a little bit of what we're supposed to capture this morning, is that if we add a little bit of light and a little bit more light, to the darkness, we find rose, or joy. This week's supposed to be a sort of kind of release valve. Um, we don't typically practice it as a penitential season filled with fasting, but a lot of the church does around the world. And so it's supposed to be like this kind of release valve for all this pent-up emotion that we've done as we've meditated on death and judgment. But I kind of like to think of this Sunday as a compass it's a way to help us find our way to heaven through the valleys of our lives, which as we've talked about the last two lives, our lives are always shadowed by loss and death. It's always just like right there on the periphery. And so I think of this Sunday where we focus on heaven as sort of this compass, a way of navigating through loss and death. Um, but I want to plant an idea in your minds, which is that heaven isn't so much a place. I know we talk about it sort of like um, this geographic space where God dwells. But I want to plant the idea that it isn't so much a place as it's a relationship. And more specifically, it's all the fruit of a res restored relationship with God who made us. Who made us from love, the love that he enjoyed from eternity with the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he made us for love, right? The reason he made us is so that we might love him. It's the reason why Jesus came to us as a baby, right? He came for love. He would not have come if he did not love us. And it's the reason he comes again as our judge. He loves us. He does not want us to live in darkness and sin as victims of injustice. And so he comes to judge our lives again at the end of all things with love and justice and mercy, and we can trust in that. I'm going to read again from Isaiah 35 from a slightly different translation than we heard this morning because I love how it describes this journey to heaven. It says, A road will be there in the burning desert. The highway, who is Jesus? will be called the road to being holy. Evil people will not be allowed to walk on the road. Only good people, the redeemed, will walk on that road. 
and no fools will go there. No lions that devour will be there. No dangerous animals will be allowed to walk on that road. That road will be for the people that God saves. The people that God, the Lord, has freed will return there. They will enter Jerusalem, which is the renewed creation with joy. And when they are restored to God, their happiness will last forever. Their gladness and joy will fill them up completely from the very top to the very bottom. And sorrow and sadness will go far away. I love that image of Jesus as the road, the narrow path that we follow through the deserts of our lives, and that all freed people, that all of us will travel on our way back to a restored Jerusalem, which we're meant to read as an image for really the entire creation. Jerusalem is just sort of this little marker that's used throughout scripture as a way as um, to indicate what's going to happen throughout the whole world. And when I was working through our readings for this week, I was reminded how little of the New Testament is actually concerned about where we go after we die. You know, what happens to us in that moment when we die and our souls leave our bodies. John 14 speaks of Jesus preparing rooms, but I love that that word actually is more accurately translated an inn or a way station. So Jesus is preparing this sort of stopping point where you go and you get rest and renewed in order to continue on your journey. And that's really the journey to the resurrection. And then in Philippians 1.23, Paul speaks of desiring to depart from his body so that he can be with Christ. And then along the same lines, in Luke 23, when Jesus is on the cross, he assures the thief on the cross next to him that today you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in this blissful, lovely place where I am. These verses assure us that those who die in Christ are one, absolutely safe in the love of God, two, they're in the presence of Jesus, and three, they're waiting for the resurrection. And really, the New Testament doesn't give us a whole lot more than that when it talks about what happens immediately after we die. And I don't want to jump, I deliberately wanted to pause there because I know that this is a question that is pressing for a lot of us. A lot of us have faced the death of loved ones and wondered, where are they? What are they experiencing right now? So I wanted to pause and just give you those three assurances before I moved on. But I also think it's really important to note that that isn't the question that most of the New Testament is concerned with answering. It's concerned with just giving us the few small details that we need to move with confidence and joy in the face of our losses. If you hear nothing else from me this morning, I want you to hear that the Christian understanding of heaven is so much bigger and so much more beautiful and so much more compelling than just the answer to the question of where we go after we die. Or as the Anglican bishop and writer N.T. Wright, who's written a ton on this subject, I love this. Somebody asked him this, and he said, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. 
So what is this expansive view of heaven? Like, so what is this bigger view of heaven that's meant to reinvigorate us? Well, I think our reading from Isaiah 35 gives us a couple more clues. First, it gives us a picture of how the earth will look when it's restored after Christ's return. At the start of our reading, Isaiah speaks of lands that have been scorched and destroyed by warfare. And these lands are now bursting into bloom. Right? These are earths that have been salted so that they can no longer bear life. And what Isaiah is saying is despite the attempts of the enemy to make these unfertile places, they're going to burst into bloom. And things that we need to sustain our life will grow there. And more than that, water, which is so essential for every living being, will unexpectedly burst out in these places. Dry places are going to be made into places that can sustain plant, animal, and human life. When I was reading this, I was reminded of friends of mine. I I spent some time in India in my 20s, and I was reminded of friends who live there, and um, they, they work as farmers up in the northern part of the country. And now the land there is so hot and so dry that they can't cultivate land that they've been on for generations any longer. And people, their relatives are dying from excessive heat, and so are the animals. Or perhaps when I was talking about this, you were thinking about places that have been destroyed by war. You were thinking of images you've seen over the last couple weeks from Ukraine or Syria or Afghanistan. When Jesus returns, all of these places that have suffered because of human actions will be renewed so that they are once again life-giving paradises. And we will be healed and restored. The blind receiving sight and the deaf receiving hearing is Isaiah's shorthand, right? His, it's his, like his way of just like opening us up to our imaginations, up to all the ways that we're going to be healed. So imagine for yourself, just for a moment, all the things in your life that feel fractured and broken, pieces of your body that don't work the way they should, and imagine the healing that will come to those in your resurrected body. But I think it's really important to see that Jesus' resurrection gives us an image of what our resurrection will look like. And what I mean by that is that he carried his scars So I think in our resurrected body, this is just my speculation, but I think I can stand on firm ground based on Jesus' resurrection. I think there's a way in which the scars that we carry that help us to be recognizable to those around us, those things that are core to who we are and the way we experience life on the earth, that those will somehow be with us in our resurrected life. Those will be the things that will show the glory and the magnificence of God and his work in our lives. They'll no longer be a source of pain and shame, but they will be a source of joy. And then the third image that Isaiah gives us is that we will enjoy God forever. It's interesting that Isaiah chooses to highlight 
deafness and blindness in particular in this passage. Because throughout scripture, these are the marks of those who can't recognize God, right? We hear about Pharaoh hardening his heart and not having the eyes to see, right? The disciples don't always have the eyes to see or the ears to hear what Jesus is doing. And they're often the marks of someone who has a lack of faith or a hardness of heart. But what Isaiah is saying is that is when we are resurrected to live with God, our inner vision, our ability to see and hear him and understand what he's doing are going to be restored. We will see God exactly as he is face to face. And this perfect union with God where we're not confused about what he's doing or what our part in his vision is, is going to be a source of unending joy. We will find joy in obedience in a way that we struggle now. And so what does our gospel reading add to this conversation? In particular, what does the conversation between Jesus and the followers of John John the Baptist add to this conversation? Well, I think we're meant to read these passages together because the conversation with John offers us a way of growing through loss, a way of pressing into the promises of heaven before our deaths. By the time we encounter this reading, John had probably been in prison for about a year. And when, although he had proclaimed with prophetic assurance that Jesus was the Messiah, the chosen one of God, it's pretty clear that right now he's experiencing doubts. He had assured the crowds that Jesus would usher in the day of judgment, that he would burn up, that his, the fire of God's judgment would come like a burning fire on all the chaff. He promised the crowds that God would punish his enemies and presumably restore the nation of Israel. But now, unless Jesus intervened, John would almost certainly be executed. And so John sends his followers to Jesus and essentially asks him to restore his faith, to resolve his confusion, and specifically his confusion about what the return of God would look like. And I love how Jesus' response honors John in his doubt. He doesn't just respond to his question about whether he is the Messiah, but he does it in a way that invites John's response. He invites John to respond differently to his imprisonment because of his hope in the new creation. By situating his own healing acts within Isaiah 35, Jesus is essentially saying, John, you're right. You're not mistaken about the character of God's kingdom. God's justice will roll down like a flood and renew the earth. Just not right now. I am healing just a few individuals, but someday everyone will be healed, and you know that because you know the scriptures. And I imagine he is also saying, John, I am not going to save you from death at Herod's hands. 
but I promise that if you trust in me until the end, until the fall of that axe, you will be delivered from bondage. You will be delivered from bondage. With my own death, I will ransom you. You won't see my death, but believe it is coming. I will ransom you and set you free through my own death on the cross, and I will bring you into unending joy. John, you aren't wrong that I am coming to address injustice, but that's only one piece of the work of renewal that I am beginning. Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. And so Jesus invites John to be renewed in his hope and to respond to his imprisonment with dignity and courage and inner strength just as he will do in his own passion. John can deny the power of darkness that is arrayed against him by preserving and exercising his own spiritual freedom. He can pay attention to what is happening in his mind and his soul. He can still use his circumstances as an opportunity to encounter and love God and proclaim the good news of the God who saves. And we can do this too. Our spirits today can be refreshed by the scripture's promises of resurrection and a new creation. If you want to do this after the service, I invite you, one of the easiest ways to do this is to pull out our liturgy for the burial of the dead. It contains almost all of the New Testament promises and Old Testament promises pertaining to resurrection and the new creation. And I invite you, if you want to steep yourself even more in these promises, pull out the liturgy for the burial of the dead. I do this about once a year. I just read through it and soak myself in these scriptures. And then I pray the prayers. I pray the prayers on my own behalf. I pray them on the sake, behalf of others I know who have died. And it is such a rich time of renewal. And I do this as well because, like John, it can be hard to see the signs of the new creation in the midst of the darkness. And the only way you can see the signs of the new creation is if you know what those signs are, if you know what you're looking for. And soaking yourself in the scriptures of the New Testament is a wonderful way of anchoring yourself, of helping yourself to recognize God's redemptive work in the world. And reading the scriptures this way is also a way of renewing your eyes of your heart, and the ears of your heart. Because once you start reading the scriptures in the new creation, you start seeing the signs of it everywhere. You start seeing those glimmers of light in the lives of people you've been praying for for years. You start to see the cracks in the lives of coworkers that you have felt deep bitterness towards you start to see the light breaking through in unexpected places. And then you can pray. You can pray and ask God to help you find ways to be his agents of light, 
to see those glimmers and to ask how he wants you to participate in expanding the glow of his Holy Spirit. I'm going to read, I'm going to close by reading something for you. And I'm reading this because I think it can be easy to look at the life of John the Baptist and think that that's pretty extraordinary. I'm likely not to ever be in prison with my head on a chopping block. And so I'm reading some, uh, I'm going to read you a portion of a more current work. It's from one of my favorite books called He Leadeth Me by Walter Sizek. This book came to me at a really dark time in my own life, and I desperately needed its wisdom. I could only see my circumstances as a prison, and reading Walter Sizek expanded my view to see cell in a different light, which is, there's also a meaning of a monastic cell, right? Which is a place that you experience God despite your confinement. Walter Sizek was a Polish-American priest who spent 23 years in Soviet prison camps in the wake of World War II. He spent five of those years in solitary confinement. And from a situation similar to John the Baptist, Sizek speaks in the passage I'm going to read to you about how exhausted, after months of being ground down by interrogators, he despaired. He knew he was going to sign his confession the next day and likely be transported to a work camp. And in this moment of utter despair, God transformed his darkness into an experience of blinding light and spiritual freedom. As with Jesus' invitation to John, Walter Sizek reminds us that while loss and doubt are a very normal part of the spiritual life, we always have a choice of how we're going to respond. We always have the freedom within us to choose how we will respond to our circumstances. And in this case, Walter Sizek learned that he could grow in intimacy with God despite being cut off from all other human contact and despite being ground down by his work in a camp where he was given no reprieve for time to pray or even to take care of himself. So I invite you to hear this testimony from a brother. I knew that I must abandon myself entirely to the will of God and to live from now on in this spirit of self-abandonment to God. And I did it. I can only describe this as an experience of just letting go, of letting go of the reins of my life, my last effort to control my responses to my interrogators. It was all too simple, and yet that one decision has affected every moment of my life since. And so I have to call it my second conversion. God's will is not hidden somewhere out there in the situations in which I found myself, but rather the situations, the trials, were his will for me. What he wanted me to do was to accept these situations as from his hands, to let go of the reins of my life, and to place myself entirely at his disposal. 
He was asking me for an act of total trust, allowing for no interference or restless strivings on my part. He was asking me for a complete gift of myself, nothing held back, and it demanded absolute faith in God's goodness, in his existence, and his concern for the minutest details of my life, in his power to sustain me and his love protecting me. It meant losing the very last hidden doubts in my heart, the fear that God will not be there to bear me up. It was something like that awful eternity between anxiety and belief, when a child first leans back and lets go of all support whatsoever, only to find that the water truly holds him up and he can float motionless and totally relaxed. I'm going to pray for us for a moment, and then I'll invite us to silence. Lord God, our lives are filled with cells. They're filled with things that we believe hold us back from knowing you. Depression, anxiety, the disappointment of a lost job, infertility, and many more. God, expand our imaginations. Expand our imaginations so that we can see you in these places, so that we can see your light penetrating the darkness. Draw us to your light. Draw us to yourself. Make us into light bearers. Expand our capacities to know you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.